So, I would say that while the Sermon on the Mount, by and large, every topic that we have covered so far, we're in week seven, is uh, challenging on some level. In my experience, both personally and as a pastor, nothing is more challenging or daunting than Jesus' instructions today that we are to love our enemies. Nothing has been more relevant than loving our enemies, especially in the last year or so. Yeah, I know, we are all supposed to not have enemies. You would say, I don't have any enemies, and and I get that. The problem is, Jesus seems to assume that we do. He doesn't say, don't have any enemies. He says, love your enemies. He assumes from the get-go that all of us have enemies of one sort or another. People who annoy us, people who have hurt us, people who have wronged us or harmed loved ones or harshly criticized us. Public figures or politicians who get on our last nerve, the people we curse in conversations at work around the water cooler. I think think we can all identify with this, that if we just pause for a moment and thought to ourselves, perhaps someone in this expanded definition of what an enemy is would come to our minds. Someone we think of as an enemy, treat like an enemy, talk about or talk to as if they were enemies. So let's just take a few seconds and do that. Better yet, ask God to reveal to you someone in your own life or mind that you treat or think about or talk about as an enemy. Go ahead, I'll wait. Works better if you do that. If you had someone come to mind, welcome to the club. I'm in that club. If you honestly can say, I, don't, I can't think of anybody, I don't have anybody that I treat like an enemy, great, very glad for you, I invite you to pray for the rest of us. Because this is very hard. How are we supposed to learn to love our enemies? We've said all along that the goal is not just to not hate our enemies, it's to become a kind of person who loves our enemies. How are we supposed to become the kind of person who can love our enemies? If, if Jesus thinks it's that important, it seems to me there must be a way, Right? There must be a way. And the good news we've said all along is we do not do this on our own. We don't do it in a vacuum because we have the good news that we celebrate this whole time. That the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus empower us to live life purposefully and abundantly in God's kingdom here, now, and forever. As Jesus has been doing for a while now, he quotes from the law of Moses. And then he expounds on the law of Moses, he reinterprets it, he deepens it, he, he wants it to soak into our bones, to soak into our souls so that we can become the kind of people who embody the Sermon on the Mount. And now he takes on, in verses 38 and 39, the first part of this. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. So he quotes the law like he has many times before in this whole section, he does that Jewish commentary, that midrash on the law of Moses. He, he reinterprets it by deeping it, deepening it, and, and it's a pretty radical reinterpretation. Back in Exodus 21, verses 23 to 25, in a, a chapter that's absolutely full of rules about what we're supposed to do when people do violence to one another, we read this. Verse 23. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, hangnail for hangnail. I mean, it's pretty thorough. And it's pretty strong when you compare it to Jesus. 
And first of all, uh, to some degree, to some degree, the law of Moses, as it comes to us, was meant to be a bit of a corrective to what came before, which was high on retribution and, and not just in terms of some of its punish, uh, punishments. In Hammurabi's code, I'll just show you a, a picture of that. Hammurabi's code of law, for example, which is dated to be one of the uh, first, if not the first, ancient attempt to develop a rule of laws for justice and that sort of thing in society. It dates to a couple hundred years before Moses, before the Exodus, and it's more harsh than the law of Moses, than the law that God gives Moses. Some of Hammurabi's acts of justice to correct things were not acceptable to us. If you were caught robbing a house, you could be put to death, for example. And so what I think God is doing in part with the law of Moses is, is bringing a corrective, wooing society a little further along in who he hopes we're going to be. But I'll be really honest with you. If you go back and you read Exodus 21, what I just read from you, you read more in that, it's also pretty harsh. But from what we understand is, it's better than what came before. God is drawing us to something else. And then Jesus comes along and he revamps it still. He says, look, stop trying to simply get even with people and quit resisting. And he means physically resisting an evil person. And then he gives us four illustrations of what this might look like. Three, really. One, the last one isn't really about this kind of thing, but it's still a part of this package. And these illustrations aren't meant to be like all-inclusive, exhaustive. This isn't like these are the only things, places this works. They're meant to call us to use our imaginations to take the principles that we find in the Sermon on the Mount in this section and apply them in whatever situation we might find ourselves in. So the first illustration. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. It's a physical confrontation. To be struck on the right cheek in that culture, we've said before, almost certainly meant to be struck with the backhand of the person who is slapping you. And that was not just a slap, that was an insult. It was the kind of behavior that was reserved for social inferiors, for slaves and women and children in that context. And if you are insulted in such a way, Jesus says, offer the other cheek to them as well. And it sounds like an invitation to abuse. That's what it sounds like, but it's not. If you are, if you are struck on the right cheek, as I said, it implies that you, are being, uh, that you are inferior. You are being insulted. To offer the other cheek after being struck on that cheek is really to take back some of the power. It's really to take back some of the agency. In the midst of a humiliating situation, there's one thing you can do that doesn't attack the person, but doesn't just lay down and say, it's okay. And that is you can offer the other cheek. Because when you do that, what you're saying to them is this. As N.T. Wright, scholar N.T. Wright says, you're saying, look, go ahead, hit me again. But this time, I want you to hit me as if I were your equal, not your inferior. And that, in that you can shame the one who's attacking you. This is, this is turning the other cheek with a bit of attitude. And given the context, Jesus was most certainly not referring to domestic abuse that people should just put up with it. That's not what's going on here. What came to mind for these first hearers of the Sermon on the Mount, what came to mind for them were Roman soldiers who had the power, the authority to do anything they wanted to to the people they controlled. Jesus' point in, is, is in saying that we shouldn't hit back in this. He's saying if you do hit back, you, you're not going to, you're not, all you're doing is ensuring that the evil and the violence are going to continue. You're contributing to the cycle. And while you're doing it, it's tainting you in the process. It's making you less of the person Jesus wants you to be, not more of the person Jesus wants you to be. 
Turning the other cheek may break the cycle. And even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't, it transforms you. It transforms you. You're seeking to overcome evil with good. You are being transformed in the process. In the film, 42, it's the story, and there's another one, the older version is the Jackie Robinson story. I think it came out in the early 50s. And the Jackie Robinson story, Jackie Robinson plays himself, uh, and Chadwick Boseman plays him in the film 42. Love that movie. Harrison Ford plays Branch Rickey, who is a former baseball player uh, and now an executive in baseball, and he's a Christian, and he prays, and he comes to the conclusion that perhaps the most momentous thing he can do to affect change is to be the, 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 the guy who hires the first African-American to play in, the major, in major League Baseball. And so he has a meeting with Jackie Robinson in his office, and he says to Jackie, look, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to refuse to fight back. You're going to have to take the abuse. Robinson asks, you want a player that doesn't have the guts to fight back? And Ricky replies, no. No, I want a player who has the guts not to fight back. People aren't going to like this. They're going to do anything to get you to react. Follow a curse with a curse, and they'll hear only yours. Follow a blow with a blow, and they'll say the Negro lost his temper, that the Negro does not belong. Your enemy, enemy will be out in force, and you cannot meet him on his own low ground. We win with hitting, running, fielding, only that. We win only if the world is convinced of two things, that you are a fine gentleman and a great ball player. Like our Savior, you've got to have the guts to turn the other cheek. Can you do it? Jackie Robinson replies, you give me a uniform, you give me a number on my back, and I'll give you the guts. It takes courage, and it takes guts to break the cycle. Jesus is not telling us to offer ourselves up for physical abuse. He's not telling us to offer ourselves up for physical abuse. He's saying that there is another way to respond to this kind of thing that does not require physical force. It requires spiritual force, a spiritual force that has the potential to transform the situation, the circumstance, and to transform us. In other words, turning the other cheek was a form of nonviolent protest. It was, as scholar Walter Wink once coined the phrase, the third way. It's the third way. You do not back down. You do not strike back. You do something else. You do something surprising. And you transform the situation. The next illustration Jesus gives takes place in a court of law. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Don't resist. And in fact, give them more than they're suing you for, more than you have to give them. More literally, Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, which is a thin garment worn underneath your cloak, next to your skin, give them your cloak as well. Now I ask you, if someone sues you for your underwear and you give them your outerwear, what are you? You could say naked in church. You're naked, right? And again, this is hyperbole. This is not meant to be taken literally. This is Jesus saying, use the one bit of power you have in a humiliating situation to shame the person who has done this to you. It was, by law, by law, legally, you could not take someone's cloak. You could not. So by you doing that, you are shaming this person. You are showing them what they have done to you. You are taking over some power there. Again, a bit of nonviolent protest. 
You don't have to be a doormat. You don't have to countersue. You find a third way, and this, too, is a form of nonviolent protest. This, too, is an invitation to a better life. The third illustration. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Roman soldiers had the right, I think many of you know, to force anyone to carry their things and go one mile, but no further. You couldn't go any further than that. You couldn't be forced to do it. So again, you take the agency, you take the power to do the one thing you can do, and you choose to go further. You choose to go further. You surprise the soldier. You engage in a behavior that both transforms you and might cause your enemy to reconsider. Another form of nonviolent protest. We do not fight back. We do not lay down and surrender. We find a third way. Finally, the last illustration, different than the others. It isn't about conflict. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This doesn't mean give all that you have or give everything that's asked of you, though it might. It means we are not to be the kind of people who always refuse to give, always refuse to loan things out. We are not to be stingy, selfish, greedy people. We are to be generous people, open-handed, open-hearted people. This is how kingdom people behave. And then Jesus takes things a little deeper. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Next slide. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your people, your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I, I gave this part of uh, Matthew 5 a pretty thorough uh, going into back in the fall during our Love Over Fear series. Uh, so I'm not going to do that here. I'm going to summarize it for our purposes a little bit, and I put a link in the Bible app live event, so if you want to go back and listen to that sermon and go a little deeper, you can do that. Uh, or you email me, and I'll send you the text of that sermon so that you've got it. So I'm going to do that. I want to summarize it a bit, and then I want to finish this morning by talking a bit about how transformation happens. How, what is the way to the third way? What is the way to the third way? The law of Moses, but let's look at this briefly here. The law of Moses says, love your neighbor as yourself, and it equates neighbor with fellow Jew. Nowhere in the law of Moses are we ever told, nowhere in all of the Old Testament does God ever say you should hate your enemies. The assumption might be, well, if I have to love my neighbor and my neighbor, my neighbor is people like me, then I am free to hate my enemies. And there are pe- people, authors in the Old Testament who hate their enemies. I think Psalm 139 has a section where David really hates his enemies. I am filled with hatred for them. But that's not a command telling us what to do. It's a description. It's David the way he feels. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. We're, never are we commanded to hate our enemies. But that's what people do, as you can imagine. They justify their actions. Jesus then goes on to tell them that God loves and cares for all people. Righteous and unrighteous, good and evil. He cares for them. He loves them by sending them his rain and his sunshine to be upon them. This is the way God cares for all people, and we should care for all people too, whether they deserve it or not. Whether they deserve it or not. And then Jesus finishes off with this very daunting sentence, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, when you and I hear that word perfect from a Western sense, I think most of us think of, pure, without, default, without fault, without defect. 
but that is not what the Greek word actually means. The Greek word teleos means full, complete, or mature. Full, complete, or mature. It does not mean without any fault or without any defect. Furthermore, in context, in the context of this passage, this wholeness, this completion, this maturity is all about our capacity to love our enemies. Not everything. It's about our capacity to love our enemies. That is, we are to be like God in loving our enemies. And I ask you, how does God treat his enemies? He sent his one and only son to die for them. He gave himself up for us. He turned us, his enemies, into his friends. This is why the late philosopher Dallas Willard says that the litmus test for spiritual maturity is whether or not we are able to spontaneously love our enemies. Think about that. The litmus test for spiritual maturity is whether or not we are able to spontaneously love our enemies. To do so is proof positive that we are mature in the faith, that we are as perfect in our love of our enemies as the Father God is perfect in his love for his enemies. So when we talk about the ECC Touchstone of Transformation, we mean that it is our desire, it is our intention to provide for you the resources and the relationships for this journey from curiosity to Christiformity, from wanting to know about Jesus to being fully formed in Christ. Galatians 4.19, the Apostle Paul says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. He says in the next sentence, he is perplexed, he is struggling with this. He wants Christ formed in them. Not just that they know a lot about Jesus, but they're formed in him. Christoformity. This is where we get all the language from spiritual formation. The goal is not merely that you know more about Christ. The goal, as pastor and author John Mark Comer says, is that we be with Jesus, that we become like Jesus, and we do what Jesus did. We be with Jesus, we become like Jesus, and then we do what Jesus did. It is by being with Jesus, it is by growing and transforming and becoming like Jesus that we are all able to do what Jesus did, to love our enemies, to make it a part of our nature, our way of being in the world. This transformation is the way to the third way. Transformation is the way to the way of Jesus. How does it happen? Is it automatic? No. It's clear from the letters of the New Testament that uh, people can be, uh, have, have a great capacity to just mess things up. Even people who have come to know Christ or the Apostle Paul would have nothing to write about. We need to do some work. We cannot just drift into spiritual maturity. We do not drift into this perfection or this completion of Jesus, of the love of Jesus that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. No, our transformation requires our participation with the Holy Spirit. Our transformation requires our participation with the Holy Spirit. Years ago, as much of, and I say, I'm talking 40 years ago, maybe plus. 40 years ago or so, as the conversation about spiritual formation began to develop in this country, people protested it, by the way. They picketed them because they thought it was new agey. It's just ancient. It's not new agey. But as it developed from the likes of Dallas Willard and Richard Foster, and then it was carried on by the work of others down to today, Jan Johnson, James Bryan Smith, Emily Freeman, John Ortberg, John Mark Comer, all excellent, and there's many, many more who talk about spiritual formation as an important part of the life of the disciple. 
but they developed sort of a model of how to talk about this, and it's gone through some changes. I'm taking the basic one I want to show you from uh, the introduction to The Good and Beautiful Life by James Bryan Smith, but I'm going to make one slight change to it because in more recent uh, conversations with him, he makes this change to it. So I'm going to adjust it just a little bit for our purposes. With or without Christ, we are all being, tra- we are being formed into something. We're either becoming something better than what we are or we're becoming something worse than what we are. We are all disciples of something, consumers, the media, politics, our own false narratives about how God works in the world, how life works in the world. And all of these things and many more are shaping us into something unless we intentionally choose a different way. And so we have this triangle of transformation. And right at the center of it is the work of the Holy Spirit in all of this. Our transformation requires participation with the Holy Spirit. And all of these angles around here are the ways in which the Spirit works in our lives. As we said a couple of weeks ago, God will not transform us against our will. We will not be transformed without God's work in us. To quote St. Augustine, without God we cannot, without us God will not. Without God we cannot become like Christ. Without us God will not make us into Christ-like people. We have to participate. So back to the triangle first, we do all of these things in the context of community with brothers and sisters in Christ, always journeying with one another, praying for one another, holding one another accountable. As Hebrews 10, 24 says, we are stirring one another on, spurring one another on to love and good deeds together. And in a pandemic, doing it together as a part of the community is challenging. But we still do it together, whether you're online worshiping with us or in the room. We do it by Zoom, we do it with phone calls, we meet up in places where we can be socially distanced, we pod together, we do it in community because we need one another. The other part of the triangle on the other side is practices, soul training exercises, spiritual disciplines. That is, we engage in intentional spiritual practices through which we cooperate and participate with God's Spirit. We create space for grace to be at work in our lives. Our transformation, again, will not happen without our participation with the Spirit. And if we look carefully at our passage this morning, we see Jesus doing this, giving us practices. He says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go another. That's a spiritual practice. That's going to form you and transform you. He says, don't hate your enemies, pray for them. Also a spiritual practice. Jesus gives us spiritual disciplines to engage in, to transform us. In Luke chapter chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, In the midst of a very chaotic day of ministry and business, we read this about Jesus. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Imagine if someone said that about you. Patty often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. John often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Imagine the power that would have in your life and in mine if we often withdrew to lonely places and prayed as a part of our spiritual disciplines. Jesus had regular spiritual practices, and if Jesus needed them, so do we. There are two basic types of soul training exercises, disciplines of engagement, disciplines of abstinence. They're pretty self-explanatory, but... An engagement discipline is something you do, you give into. It might be service, it might be worship, it might be tithing. Uh, dis- disciplines of abstinence is something you withdraw from. You fast from food or the internet or media. Or maybe you engage in a time of silence. You fast from talking. You sit in silence. 
the top of the triangle are the shaping narratives of Jesus, and the other one, the life events, which is the piece that I've tweaked a little bit. First, when we adopt the narratives of Jesus, we allow them to replace our false narratives about how we understand God to work in the world or the world to work. So for an example of a false narrative, we could look at what we talked about last week. Sort of the false narrative was, I need to lie to get by. I need to lie to get by. That's what we believe to be the way you operate in the world. And we either lie in order to, uh, to protect ourselves because we think if we tell the truth, some harm is going to come to us or we're going to get in trouble. Or we lie because there's something we really want. And so the only way we think we can get it is to lie about it. But Jesus' true narrative is that God provides for all our needs and that we who are in Christ, those of us in whom Christ dwells and delights, need not fear because the kingdom of God is not in trouble and neither are we. That's Jesus' narrative. Therefore, we do not need to lie to get by. One of the best ways I know of intentionally allowing the narratives of Jesus to shape us is spending time in the Gospels daily if possible. Short little parts of the Gospel. Read them. Pray through them, meditate on them. And second, we also form by ordinary, everyday life events, the things that bring joy to our lives, the things that encourage us, as well as the things that may cause us suffering and pain. How they shape us and toward what they shape us all depends on how we respond to them. How they shape us and towards what they shape us depends on how we respond to them. Do we celebrate and share our joy and our blessings and our moments of goodness and beauty, or do we squander them and indulge ourselves? Do we steward well over the blessings we've been given, using them in turn to bless other people, or do we take them for granted? Likewise, we all face pain and suffering in life. If we allow these things to cause us to despair, or to make us bitter instead of better, as some say, they, they're going to shape us one way. But if we lean into God's Spirit, if we trust that God is at work, even in these painful, difficult realities, if we trust that God is always at work in these things, they will shape us another way. It's all about how we respond. They will shape us toward becoming Christiform people in a Christiform community. Life is going to throw things at us, like trials and tribulations. These things have the power to shape us. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4 tells us this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Guess what that word is? It's not two words. It's one word. It's the same word for perfect. That you may be perfect, not lacking anything. Responding well to suffering leads to spiritual maturity. And while I do not think, I do not believe that God sends suffering into our lives, and I do not believe that all suffering is good in and of itself at all, we are better off if we suffer. We are better off embracing that reality, not ignoring it. We embrace it by saying to God in prayer, I accept this suffering as real and not to be ignored. It is here. It is not good, but it belongs in my life, and I better figure out what I'm going to do with it. And we lean into God, and we pray that God will reveal himself to us in the midst of our pain and suffering, and I believe he will. And at the same time, you can do all of that, and you can also pray, please take this away. Please bring healing. Please deliver me from this. You can do those things at the same time. You can embrace it, and you can pray for God to take it away. At the same time, it's what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, everything is possible for you. If it is possible, please let this cup, let this hour pass for me. But if it is not, nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. 
Again, we do not engage in these things in a vacuum. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus empower us to live life purposefully and abundantly in God's kingdom here, now, and forever, even in the midst of our suffering as well as our joys. So we are now in the season of Lent. Lent, L-E-N-T, Lent. I have a problem with that letter because I'm told I say Jenny when I'm supposed to say Ginny. I just, G-I or J-E, I, I can't do it. So he probably did hear me say Lent. Lent. <laughs> I'll go back and replay this over and over. What did I say? If you've not already done so, I invite you to join the Lenten prompts that we have for you by text. You simply go to your phone or your texting app and you text the word at Lent ECC in the body where you would send your message and through the number 81010 and you will be signed up. And those will start coming tomorrow. They will come Monday through Friday throughout the rest of the season of Lent up to Easter at about 8 o'clock in the morning. They will be verses. There will be points for reflection or prayer. Uh, maybe a link to a video that you can worship by, that sort of thing. We are including this year, we are starting to send you a link on Tuesdays that will be to help you develop a spiritual practice, like instructions. It'll link you to a place that you can do that. This week's practice is silence, which I know many of us probably struggle with. What is it? How do you do it? Sign up for this, and you will get a link to that to learn how to do it. Help you to participate with the Holy Spirit in your own transformation. So friends, Scripture teaches us that we are made in God's image, that when we sin, we corrupt that image within us, but God's purposes in Christ are that that image be restored. Leaning into the Holy Spirit, giving ourselves to the community of the saints, practicing soul training exercises, listening and learning from the life of Jesus, and looking for where God is at work in all our life events, be they joyous or sorrowful. These are the ways we participate with the Spirit of God in our own transformation and restoration. I hope you will engage them. Would you pray with me? Good and gracious God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, who not only saves us and redeems us, oh God, but teaches us a better way, a third way. God, I pray for each of us that wherever we are on this journey, that we would be hungry, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice, that we would long to move more deeply into that place, Lord, where you can transform us. Would you give each of us, Lord, one step, one action we can take, this day, this week, to be able to participate more fully in our own transformation. And would you draw us to yourself? Would you make us more and more in the image of Christ? Would you birth in us, Lord God, a passion for life in the kingdom? Would you birth in us, Lord God, the ability to go forth into the world and shine as the light of the world and as the salt of the earth? Lord, that your kingdom will be nourished and expanded in and through us as individuals, as households, and as a congregation. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.